Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to F1 Innovation and Perspective, the podcast where not only are we going to talk about the current goings on in Formula One, but we're going to tie it back to the historical context and the technology that makes F1 one of the greatest sports in the world. My name is Scott Vick. I am a lifelong Formula One fan. Uh, I've been following the sport for over 30 plus years. In addition to following the sport, I love the history, I love the technology, and everything around F1. And with me, as usual, is my partner in crime, Corey. Take it away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my name is Corey. I've been following Formula One for uh, not nearly as long as Scott, uh, four or five, maybe five or six years now. Um, really just love the sport, love how fast it goes, uh, love everything about it. And honestly, I love uh, learning quite a bit through Scott. So, uh that's why we're here. All right. So this last weekend, we had the Bahrain Grand Prix to kick off the season. Uh, really, really good race. Uh, very, very exciting weekend. Um, so but without, you know, I, if, if we're talking about Bahrain, first thing we got to talk about is we got to talk about Max's absolutely dominant drive and getting win number 35. Yeah. He was up, what, 30 seconds at one point? I mean, it, it was yes. stupid, right? I mean, he, he actually was able to do a, a tire change, come back, and he was still, you know, way ahead. It, it's just yes. amazing to me. Just, you know, not only is Red Bull fast, right? But, you know, compared to Checo, even with Checo, as great of a driver he is, Max is still leading, you know? And I find that just so fascinating, just how much faster and what Max can do out of that car. Yeah, it is, it is absolutely mind blowing. I mean, it's we it's been you know it, it, you know it's been a while since we've seen just quite that dominant of a performance. At, especially, I mean, we've seen some really in the last few years with the Mercedes dominance and everything. We've seen a lot of you know really dominant drives by Mercedes, but we haven't seen one that dominant in the opening race in 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 a number of years. And it was really really opening especially after the preseason testing which we'll get into later on in the show you know it's like we thought you know it was going to be we didn't know that they were going to be quite that strong so it was just it was amazing so did you yeah. see george russell's comments about how you know it's like red bull's going to win every race this year <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know it's funny i was thinking about this um yesterday in fact you know when and this uh, obviously not disparaging George at all because he's an amazing driver. But, you know, I, I found it kind of funny where, you know, Botas leaves, right? And they were number one. Hart was great. Lewis was dominating everything. He leaves. George comes in. And the car just goes dead, right? I mean, <laughs> it's just such an important You know, it's funny because, you know, well, everything that George can do out of that car, right? It's just amazing to me how much of a driver that he really is, right? Because anybody else, he would easily be, what, like 10th, 11th? Easily, right? I mean, even look at Lewis. Lewis is a phenomenal driver. You, you could argue he's one of the greatest of all time, right? And yet he's still not, you know, even close to being up to the front, right? So I just find it just so disappointing for him just as a, individual that you know Mercedes is going through these this rough spot as he's going as he joined the team what, what do you think about that I mean, just from a historical standpoint have you seen like this 
evolution of a, a, a car that goes really, really well for a few years, dominates, and then it just go kablooey. Well, yeah, I mean, we and, and it's usually most of the time, occasionally it will happen, you know, with, with a driver, a single driver, or even a driver pairing where, you know, a, a, a team will be really, really dominant and then a driver will dump, jump ship. We saw that with Benetton back in the 90s where, you know, it was like for two years, I mean, Benetton was just, even when they're, especially in 94, when their car was not nearly as good as the Williams, they were still able, because of Michael Schumacher, uh, again, our, our, you know, you, as you said about, you know, Lewis Hamilton about arguably, arguably being one of the greatest drivers ever. Michael Schumacher also goes into that category of arguably one of the greatest drivers yeah, ever. Yeah. But mm -hmm. as soon as he leaves to go to Ferrari and Benetton takes a nosedive that then takes years for them to to climb back out of because of the, the, the driver leaving, you know, so it's, but most of the time when you see these real changes in the way things, you know, the, in the pecking order is usually more followed by large scale rule changes. So we saw that, you know, in the uh, mid, you know, 2000 teens, you know, when Red Bull was, you know, there was a four year period where Red Bull was just the absolute dominant team. You know, it's like they, they came in, you know, they got Adrian Newey, you know, they plucked him out of, you know, semi-retirement, you know, got Adrian Newey to take and breathe on that car. And Vettel goes through a four-year dominance where nobody could touch him. Right. Then the hybrid era, they completely changed the engine package that goes, that's in the back of the cars and Red Bull and their partners at the time, which I believe I'd have to check on this, but I believe it was Renault at the time they got it completely wrong and red bull suddenly goes from being the absolute top of the sport dominant to being you know third fourth in the constructors championship because of the mercedes got it perfect with the high when the hybrid era first came in and then we saw you know the eight-year span where yeah. mercedes was just the absolute dominant team and nobody could touch them well now last year you had the completely different chassis rules that came in Mm -hmm. And Red Bull, again, because it was more about aerodynamics and, the, and Red Bull has the one secret ingredient that for the last 30 years has always played one of the key roles. They have the one thing that almost every dominant car for the last 30 years has had, Adrian Newey. The guy Ooh. just even, you know, at, you know, for all the years in the sport, you know, you, you, you oftentimes will see, you know, you know, the, the hot new technical guy or the hot new aerodynamicist or something and they'll go on a, a, an upward arc where they just they're, they're the best at what they do and then they kind of level off and then they'll you know decline as is normal among you know sporting but adrian newey is kind of like tom brady in football or you know or or anybody else that you've seen or chris chelios in hockey where you see these guys that just have just such unbelievable longevity at the very mm -hmm. top and they just everybody seems to think that they're going to eventually have to come down and they do eventually yeah but my sure. god it's never when they think it is it's like yeah. it's seven eight years beyond what everybody else says oh he's done he's done you know it's like yeah. there's no way you can keep this run up and they just keep on chugging mm -hmm. and adrian knew has been that so with the you know mercedes was able to take and do a lot of things with the hybrid engines when they came online 
nine years ago that the aerodynamics, no matter how good the aerodynamics on the car were, they just could not outperform the Mercedes engines. Mm-hmm. And now that it's same, now that the engines are all more or less on par now, but it's the aerodynamics of the Red Bull is what makes it such an amazing car. And the, but not only the aerodynamics, but it also has so much mechanical grip comparatively too. And it's just, and again, it all comes down to Adrian Newey. <laughs> and, wow. and the, and, yeah. and well, I say Adrian Newey, but it's Adrian, it starts with Adrian Newey, but it's that whole Red Bull team. And they just, mm-hmm. they got the, packaging and the design of the car perfect and now everybody's having to play catch up yeah <laughs> so it, it uh, won't happen for a few more years at least right yeah well <laughs> you say that though but now let's transition to aston martin and how yeah, amazing yeah. they were this last weekend and um as uh they said on the sky sports uh feed uh ted kravitz was saying you know this last weekend aston martin was the only team that red bull was really concerned with and we saw you know and during preseason testing and everything everybody said you know because as we'll get into later about you know preseason testing it, you can't put a lot of faith in it so yeah, just right. by saying that it was like you saw how good the Mm -hmm. Aston Martins were in testing and we expected them to be pretty good. I don't think anybody expected them to be as good as they were this time around. And especially with Alonzo's unbelievable drive. I mean, he's, you know, top of the timesheets for two of the the practices. And I think if it hadn't been for, you know, maybe a mistake or two during qualifying, I think that he, you know, he definitely should have qualified better than fifth. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what do you think is it behind that? I mean, is it just the upgrades? Is it, you know, obviously the driver is phenomenal as well, but I mean, what, what do you think is, is behind that? Because I mean, last year they had Vettel, right? I mean, last year Vettel, yeah, you could kind of somewhat argue that he didn't have the best strategies, you know, going forward. So, I, you know, I'm thinking maybe, Something along the strategy as well, at least for this race. Well, I think it. I think it was a combination of things, but the primary thing I think it was is that because you know Aston Martin has said that this year's car is ninety percent new, which means that ninety percent of that car wasn't the same as last year's car, hmm. and without them saying it, by reading between the lines, you can kind of tell that. Aston Martin basically kind of gave up on last year's car, probably about halfway through the year, basically took and chucked all that and started working on this year's car and putting a lot of development into this year's car. And Vettel is a very, very, in addition to being a phenomenal driver, he's also very, very good at development. And I have a sneaking suspicion that a lot of the work that he put in last year is what helped make the car as good as it is so far this year and with being so new there's still a lot of untapped potential in that car Hmm. and you've got another driver like fernando alonso who is also really 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 good at development that they're going to continue to be able to develop that car 
and I just, I don't, I don't see, you know, it's like sometimes at the beginning of the year, you'll see a team that will come out and they'll, they'll have a really good design on the car. But as the year goes on, they're not able to develop it as well. And you see them start to taper off and kind of, you know, fall back in, in the order. And I think that with, in the case of Aston Martin, I think that they're going to continue to be able to unlock more and more potential out of that car. And I really see them as being able to really take the fight to Ferrari and Red Bull this year, yeah, wow. especially with Alonso behind the wheel. And, you know, for all the things that we can say about, you know, Stroll, and and I'm not talking about, you know, Eric Stroll, I'm, or uh, I'm not talking, I'm sorry. I'm not talking about Lance Stroll. I'm talking about Eric Stroll, the old man. He has, he wants to win. He is not in, he's not like a lot of the billionaires and, and the very, very rich men who come into Formula One and they're there, they're, they're just there to make up the numbers. Stroll wants to win. He wants that to be a championship caliber team. Will they do it with just his son in place? No. And, you know, I'm sorry to say it, but I, I don't see it happening with Lance Stroll. But as long as they've got a, another super high caliber driver, such as Fernando Alonso. Yeah. And they continue to work the way they do. He, they continue to take and take the money that he's invested. I don't see, I, I definitely see them be actually being able to develop the car in such a way to make them a real challenger. Nice. That would be awesome. <clears throat> It'd be good to have somebody else that's uh, somewhat competitive, right? Keep rebel. Yes. Right. Yes. And, nice. and, and like, a, you know, and like Kravitz said, you know, over the weekend, you know, it's, you know, red, red bull, the only team, they weren't that concerned about Ferrari. They weren't that concerned about Mercedes, but they were concerned about Aston Martin and they made mm -hmm. sure that they had everything covered. Now, some people might say that, you know, Leclerc's, you know, unfortunate, you know, yeah, timing of losing okay. that engine and everything is what got Alonso to that point. But I'm not totally convinced that yeah. Leclerc would have coasted to third on the podium. Yeah. I really think that the as as inspired as Alonso was this weekend, I I don't say I, I don't think that that's totally true that I mm -hmm. think Alonzo may not have been able to do it, but I definitely think he would have, you know, definitely pushed Leclerc. And yeah. if Leclerc made a mistake or something, Alonzo would have been there to pounce oh, yeah. anyway. No doubt about yeah, it. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. But now on the flip side, we talked a little bit about Lance Stroll and everything. And one thing I got to say is he impressed the hell out of me this weekend yeah. to take and come home. You know, he came home in fifth place and did it with two broken wrists. And I believe somebody else said that he also had a, you know, he, he had a banged up knee on top of that oh, Two wow. broken wrists. He had surgery on it, you know, yep. just, I mean, literally days before, but he was still able to take and pass the physical in order to be able to take, you know, prove that he could get out of the car and everything. And he passed all, you know, all the requirements physically to be able to drive the car and for him to take and gut it out, not just gut it out, but do it at a very high level. I got to say, I was really impressed by Lance's, you know, you know, the surprise of, you know, not, of, you know, being able to drive this weekend. Right. Yeah. It, it was really amazing. Just, and you could see that, you know, at certain points that he was truly in pain when he was using one hand to turn, you know, instead of using mm -hmm. both, both hands. So you, you definitely saw that he wasn't at his optimal, right. There, there was some pain behind there, um, which, you know, 
what happens in two weeks, you know, when he's a little bit more healed, you know, it's yeah, going to be absolutely tighter, a little bit more tighter with, uh, with Alonzo, you know, maybe not, but maybe he's a little bit closer, you know, as far as speed and pace, you know, it, it'll be interesting yep. to see. Yeah. I want to make one quick point though, because of Alonzo and Stroll coming together, I mean, it was, you know, it was one of those things that it's like when Stroll tagged Alonzo, there was no way. There was no place else for him to go. So for them to be able yeah, to take and right. handle it as well as they did also shows me that at least waits for the, you know, the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Um, I see them working really well together as teammates. So I just wanted to take and, and point that out as well. So I, I think we can learn quite a bit from Alonzo as well. I think he's going to learn a heck of a lot from Alonzo. And I think yeah. that as much as I love Vettel and as much as a great driver as Vettel is, I see Alonzo being much more of a mentor to Stroll than I ever saw Vettel being. Now I could be completely wrong, but that's just my own, you know, yeah, you know, my, my own view of it. Right, 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 right. Awesome. So rookies. Yes. We, yeah, we got to talk about the rookies. <laughs> So I guess we'll go ahead and we'll go in uh, their uh, finishing order. So first of all, we got to talk about DeVries. So he was probably, you know, one of the more, uh, you know, the highly touted rookies coming in, uh, came into, you know, AlphaTauri, you know, you know, being very highly touted because he had just, you know, finished winning the Formula E championship and everything. And, you know, he had a decent race, you know, but it's, you know, you can definitely tell that his, uh, his race craft in Formula One is going to need a little bit of tweaking compared to the way that it was in uh, when he was at, you know, in Formula E. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, I I think I, I was listening to somebody talk about this where, you know, the amount of differences between the lower levels meaning like you know formula two formula three even i would say even uh formula e because that's a whole what 10 minutes uh you know there's so many different changes that you have to make while you're driving to make sure that you know you're optimally using all the settings correctly and you're you're actually using the car as it's designed so there's a lot of differences you know even going into turns or going to straightaways there's a lot of differences that, that have to occur versus the lower levels, right? So <clears throat> for what they did, I think that the the three rookies there, I think they, they did fantastic. And, you know, unfortunately, they got a DNF. But, you know, before that, I think he was doing pretty well. Yeah, so, so I, next we'll have, to take, we'll have to talk about Piastri. Um, there's was, you know, the whole big, you know, dust yeah. up, between you know who owns his rights is it you know does he does he belong to alpine does he you know is it you know permissible for mclaren to employ his services because he hadn't actually signed anything with alpine for next year you know but i think he you know for all intents and purposes even though you know he did wind up with the 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 lone dnf for the day you know, it really was completely out of his hands. It, you know, it wasn't, you know, by some mistake of his own, it was just flat out the car died. And, yep. you know, and we saw the same problems with, you know, Lando 
you know, Norris, it was like he had to make five freaking pit stops, you know, during the, <laughs> during the course of the race, you know, because they had yeah. to keep topping off the hydraulics and everything in order just to keep the car running. So, yeah. you know, and he ends up, you know, getting lapped and everything. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, I don't, I, I, I'm, you know, we'll, uh, at the end of this, we'll go ahead and we'll grade the, the drivers and, you know, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But the guy that we got to talk about is Logan Sargent. Yeah. First right. American back in Formula One in seven or eight years. That kid, I knew that he was going to be probably pretty good, but who knew? I mean, yeah. you know, yes. I mean, he, he doesn't, you know, score any points in his first outing. But I mean, with you know, at the he, he almost makes it into Q two on his very first qualifying attempt. You know, he only loses out to Lando Norris because they they set the exact same time, but only because Lando set his time first is yeah. the only reason why Lando made it through to Q two. So to you know, he took and out qualified his much more highly touted yeah uh, teammate. And, you know, if, you know, one or two things had broken his way, he would have scored points in his very first outing. So I, yeah. I got to say, you know, um, you know, kudos to Logan. And, and I'm hoping that, uh, you know, we're going to see much, you know, we're going to, I'm hoping that we're going to see a lot more of uh, George Russell-like performances yeah. on Saturdays. And right. so I can't wait to see, you know, what, you know, how he looks, you know, in Melbourne in two weeks. Yeah, 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 yeah. Logan was really impressive just from a driver maturity standpoint. You know, it, it looked like he was really comfortable in the car. He looked like he was really comfortable in the drive. Um, he just looks like he'd been doing it for years, you know. So I was really surprised to see how efficient and how just calm and relaxed he was. Okay. So let's give the rookies their let's give the rookies their first grade for first race of the season so DeVries give me your grade uh DeVries I would say I'd say probably a B same I, I would say you know I think that he's definitely got a lot more potential but I definitely have the three drivers I think he was probably the most out of his depth I yeah. I thought now you know so yeah definitely definitely give him a B uh Piastri yeah, you know, Piastri, for me at least, uh, even before his DNF, right, I didn't really see him being that relaxed. I didn't see him really taking control of that uh, car. I didn't really see him being a, a Formula One driver, if that makes sense. You know, it, it seemed like to me he was almost like a reserve driver. You know, it, it, maybe that that is a little bit different moving forward, but that I'd probably maybe even give him a B minus, maybe a C plus uh, for his drive on Sunday. Maybe I'm being a little bit too harsh, but uh, that's that's what I think so far. No, I I totally agree. And you know, it, I mean, to me, he looked like you know, I, I liked your comment about how he looked like a reserve driver because literally that's what he's been for the last eighteen months. This was his yeah. first, you know, start in anger, if you will in uh, any kind of race situation in 18 months so yes he uh, definitely looked you know not as relaxed as some of the other guys who you know were you know albeit not in formula one they were actually racing quote-unquote in anger last year 
as yeah. opposed to Piastri. Um, so actually, I'm going to give him an incomplete, just simply because he <laughs> didn't he didn't look relaxed, but because he got the DNF, I'm going to give sure, him an incomplete, and, and I'm going to punt until after yeah, we see yeah, his yeah, performance that's, that's at good, Melbourne. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and then so finally, Sergeant. Yeah, Sergeant definitely an A. Yeah, no doubt about yeah. it. He's phenomenal. Definitely got to give him an A, you know, and it's like, I know that you and I are a little bit of a homers being, you know, Americans, but I really yeah, think yeah, yeah. that Sergeant did uh, an outstanding job. I think he acquitted himself very, very well. Um, we're starting to see, you know, Williams start to make some significant yeah. uh, improvements over the cars in the past. And, you know, and I definitely think that Sergeant, you know, Sergeant was definitely an upgrade over, <laughs> over Latifi. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Crash crashes a lot. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, okay, so moving forward to Haas and Hulkenberg. So while Hulkenberg obviously is not a uh, rookie, it is his first year back after what two seasons, three seasons? What how two seasons how away, yes. Yeah. So again, you know, he joins uh K Mag. You know, who also was as a boomerang, if you will. He's come back to the sport uh, mm-hmm. as of last year. Um, what do you think about his drive? It was really – he's kind of, you know, I kind of chalk him up into like kind of the same, you know, area as Piastri that just kind of – it was kind of what I was expecting for a guy who's been away for two years. Yeah, because as we've talked about in the past, you know, with the limitations on preseason testing, it's not like it used to be in the past where the teams would literally have, you know, a month, depending upon when they, you know, unveiled the car and everything that they would have, you know, a month to six weeks of testing before the first race of the season. And now with the limitations on testing, they basically get three days to shake the car down and start figuring things out. And for driver, you know, for rookie drivers and for drivers who, you know, may have been away from the sport for a little bit, yeah. because the technology in the cars moves at such a rapid pace that even a year away, a year or two away, the cars advance so much. And that it's really hard for even a former Formula One driver to jump right back in. You know, we saw that at Alpine the first year Alonzo came back in the fact that he'd been away for two years and we saw him struggle at the beginning. And so, you know, Hulkenberg, it was kind of the same thing. You know, it's being away from, you know, the sport for two years. Yeah. He just kind of had a mediocre drive at best. Right, right. You know, it, it's it's funny because him and K-Mag both finished right about the same places. Um, but, I, you know, I wonder how much of that is driver and how much of that is just poor performing car, right? Because K-Mag, I think, is a fairly decent driver. You know, obviously, he's not a match or happened, but he's a pretty decent driver. So, you know, how much is that do you think is the drivers versus how much do you think is the car and does the car need to be developed a little bit more? Oh, yeah, the car definitely needs a little more development. Um, We saw that, you know, during preseason testing, we saw a few, you know, small little, you know, problems with the car in, you know, that they're still going to need to sort out and everything. But, you know, 
you know, K-Mag finishing 13th. Uh, I forget where Hulkenberg finished. I don't remember if it was 15th or 16th. Yeah, know, but, it was one of those. Yeah, 15 or 16th. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, you know, it was, I think it's, I don't, I think that in Hulkenberg's case, it was, you know, again, it was, the car needs more work. Hulkenberg needs to come to terms with the car and the car needs some work. So yeah. it's just yeah, kind yeah, of, yeah. it's a combination, I think in this case of all three, um, you know, it's, so I, I, I just, I, I think jury's still out on, on where Haas is going to be at this year. Um, I'm hoping that it's not going to be another, you know, case of like what we had a couple of years ago where Haas came out, you know, poorly out of the gate. And even though they really worked hard, and they spent a lot of time and a lot of money on developing the car. They just got a little too far behind the eight ball early on in the year, and they never were really able to catch up. I'm hoping that they're able to come to terms with the car a little bit better, and I'm hoping that as the car gets better, Hulkenberg gets more comfortable, then we'll see what Haas is, is really capable of. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm pulling for him, you know. It'd be a, it would be nice to see them to be a little bit more competitive, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Leclerc, more woes woes for him. You know, if it's Poor not Leclerc. I mean, it's like that guy just cannot seem to catch a break. Yeah. The phenomenal driver <laughs> you know, right now. So, you know. Amazing that, driver. That, that's one, one thing I wonder, right? So for him, I think it's, he's in a bad spot, right? Because one thing or another. It's either the car or, like I said, it was a strategy, at least it was last year, right? To, obviously, this year is to be seen. But how many year, more years do you think Leclerc is going to give Ferrari, right? I mean, do you think he's going to leave? But then again, where is he going to go? What other team would be even nearly as competitive? I mean, you, you can't go to Red Bull. They're locked up. You can't really go to, to Mercedes. I mean, you got two monsters there. There's no way you're going to go there. Uh where else? You know, I mean, maybe Aston Martin if if Stroll for whatever reason decides to leave or or Alonzo, but I mean, there's not a place for him really anywhere else, right? So he just has to grin and bear it pretty much, right? What do you think? No, yeah, no, I totally agree that I don't think he has to grin and bear it though. Though the one thing that I see that I think Leclerc Leclerc was kind of when Ferrari made him. The, the the de facto number one and pushed Vettel out. Yeah. I don't think that he was ready to be the leader that was necessary. And I think that's part of the reason why we've seen Ferrari flounder a little bit because when Ferrari has done really, really well, it's because they've always had, it's because they've had a driver who is able to motivate the mechanics and motivate the technicians and motivate the engineers sure. and work to make, you know, and get everybody on the same page to make the car that much better and to make the car really competitive to allow their talent to shine. And I don't see Leclerc as being quite that leader. It does, it, does he have the potential to do it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like that's, you know, you don't get to, especially with a team that has way more politics involved like Ferrari, you know, politics are, you know, part of formula one. It's part of what makes oh, it so yeah, interesting yeah. and everything. And it's like, and, and throughout the history of, of formula one, you've got, you know, all 
you know, all myriad of politics. But Ferrari is more political than most. Yeah. And I don't think that Leclerc has quite learned how to navigate the politics. Mm-hmm. And if, as soon as he figures that out, hopefully he can figure it out in time, then he's going to come, he's going to shine. And once that it's part is right now is Ferrari is after the, the disappointment of last year where they thought they had a really good car. Leclerc really should have been able to be much closer to Verstappen in the championship fight. But it, it's kind of like I saw uh, something the other day that it was like, it's like a, a badly written, you know, iPhone app where it's like, okay, if you've got, you know, a, if you turn on good strategy, it's going to automatically turn off car reliability. Or if you turn on car reliability, the strategy goes gets turned off automatically. Or if it's, you know, or if you've got, you know, or if you somehow you're able to take and get the other two turned on, you know, no driver mistakes gets turned off, you know? Yeah. So it's yeah, like yeah. If you had, you know, it just seems to be that right now it's just no matter what Ferrari seems to do, something is always working against them. it seems yeah. like. And it's like, but once it clicks, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be fun to watch, but it's just, right. it's a matter of, you know, wondering when are things going to finally click? So now, you know, with Benotto being gone and new team principal in place and everything, you know, new people, new blood running the show. Let's see, you know, it's like, you know, qualifying third and fourth, you know, Leclerc's engine failure aside, sites finishing fourth. Let's see, you know, where things go <laughs> for yeah. the rest but of you the know, year. So. Again, you know, look at last year with, with uh, Red Bull, you know, and very early on, their cars were unreliable. You know, I mean, they, they yes. had what Max had what two DNFs last year? First, two. yep, first race in the third race of the year. Yep. So, yeah, so we'll so, see, man. You know, it, it would be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> To see them really compete, you know, them, Aston Martin and Red Bull, that may make it a really exciting uh, year, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's, you know, and it all goes back to um, one of the things, you know, with Russell's comment about, you know, how Red Bull is going to win every race this year. And in a 23 race season, I, yeah. there's just no way that it's going to happen. You know, right. somebody's going to make a surprise every year. There's always at least, you know, there have been years, you know, where teams have been absolutely dominant. You know, you've got like 90 or eight, what was it? 87, 88 when McLaren won, you know, 15 out of 16 races, you know, but they didn't win every one because, you know, there's always so many variables on any given race weekend that, the one team being, you know, no matter how good the car is, no matter how dominant the drivers are, there's going to be things that are going to happen. Max goes into a corner, tire blows, puts him yeah. into the kitty litter. Leclerc wins, right. you know, or something like, you know, something weird like that happens, you know, or, you know, Alonzo has an amazing qualifying finish, you know, it wins the pole. I mean, and these are all just scenarios that I, yeah, I yeah, thought, yeah. you know, in my own head, you know, so, you know, weird scenario, uh, you know, Alonso wins the pole, Verstappen's second, lights go out, they're charging down the straightaway, going into it, they touch, yeah. put them both into the kitty litter, 
you know, who's going to come through at that point? You know, it's like, is that, yeah. you know, uh, you know, another fortunate win for Mercedes? Is that the time, you know, when, you know, one of the midfield, you know, midfield teams has a, an amazing day in the next, and, you know, McLaren gets a win, you know, kind of like Monza two years ago, you know, where it was just, you know, both, you know, Mercedes get, you know, taken out early in the race. McLaren's able to come through and win. You know, it's yeah. Any there's just too many variables that there yeah. is there. I just you know, and and nowadays, you know, even back when McLaren dominated, you know, and won 15 or 16 races, even that year, you know, there was only 16 races, and now we've got a 23 race season. It's even right. more of a marathon now than it was, you know, 30 years, 30, 40 years ago. There's no way that yeah. that that's just completely you know as yeah. much as, i mean even as, last year you know even last year as dominant as, as red bull was he still didn't win every single race so yeah there's, yeah there's so many variables like you said right yep absolutely so with that being said though what the hell has happened with mercedes well <laughs> yeah you know it's funny i always think about you know last uh i guess last year and this year um christian horner on drive to survive he said something i forget how he phrased it is something to the fact of you know uh toto wolf is just relying on his engineers or you know he's never had to build a car from scratch which is what they had to do last year right so he's always had to he's always been basically given a fantastic formula so toto wolf is is one right he hasn't had to do something from scratch and you know i think about that quote a lot um, obviously not enough where I can quote it, but, uh, you know, he, <laughs> he goes through and, and, you know, basically nails him, right? He's a, like, Hey, this is something you need to work on. Right. And the other quote that, that, uh, you know, just recently he, uh, well, last year, recent, he said, Christian Horner said, well, fix your car, right? Explosive deleted, uh, when they were having all <laughs> the, uh, purposing issues, well, fix your car. Well, yeah, that's, you know. It was harsh criticism, but that was a fact of the matter. He needed to fix the car, right? Yes. It wasn't the FIA regulations that are going to change. Everybody else fixed it. He needed to do the same thing, you know? Yep. So who knows, man? Uh, You know, they've had engineers, they've had designers leave. So who knows, man? Who who knows what's going to happen there? But it would be nice to see them competitive again. So I, I guess the question for you: What do you think if uh, if they don't get competitive this this year? You know, say they still slack off into you know fifth, sixth, mid midfield type territory, does Lewis say, "Yeah, you know, I'm done," or do you think he's he's in the hunt for win number eight? I definitely think that Lewis has said very adamantly even after the race on sunday lewis said very adamantly that he is there to compete he has no interest in leaving now having now him saying that now and him saying that nine months from now after race 22 race 23 when his contract is up does he say no you know, I think I'm just going to take my, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and I'm just going to go play, you know, I'm going to go play on my yacht and go, you know, fly my airplane around and play with my, you know, road music, all that like stuff. That. Yeah, yeah. You know, exactly. <laughs> you know I, 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 I don't know. Part of me says that, yes, if Mercedes, Mercedes 
doesn't improve and he has another winless season, does he call time and say, I'm done? Yeah. I don't know. Part of me seems to think that, yes, that might be the case. But part of me says, no. If he sees the potential in, you know, even if he has another winless season this year, but he sees the potential and he sees Mercedes making gains. True. Yeah, I can see him signing, you know, because his contract's up at the end of the year. I see him, he could, you know, potentially sign, you know, do like another one-year deal and go from there. Yeah, it goes, yeah. Yeah, but also at the same time, in the last couple days, there's been a number of, you know, comments that he's made about how he has told the team, we've gone the wrong way with the car. We need to do, you know, we need to make some fundamental changes in the car. And the fact that it doesn't sound like they really listen to him makes me kind of think that maybe if things don't improve significantly, that, yeah, he may just call time and just say, hey, I'm done. And, you know, he may pull an Alonzo where, you know, he might leave for a year or two. Mercedes gets things back, you know, you know, goes and recharges the batteries, if you will. And then he sees that Mercedes, uh, you know, has, you know, righted the ship or if he sees another one of the teams and another opportunity comes along you know at one of the other teams where you know they're you know at the top you know i can see maybe coming back you know pulling the lonzo and you know maybe going away for a year or two and then coming back but who knows we'll see like i said yeah the see you know formula one is no longer a sprint it, it is definitely a marathon and yeah. so we have you know it's it's way too early in the season <laughs> to to make any like really really bold predictions at this point sure. if yeah. we do make bold projected predictions it's a sucker's bet <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so what do you think about Bahrain being the season opener uh I don't know. I just, I kind of, you know, being a old school Formula One fan, I don't have, I don't love a lot of these, the, what I refer to as the new world tracks, as opposed to the old world tracks, Um, you know, because you've got, you know, tracks like, you know, Bahrain, you've got Jeddah, you've got, I mean, and even, you know, I mean, I, I, for whatever reason, I mean, I knew Bahrain had been around for a little while, but I didn't even dawn on me that this was actually the 19th race in Bahrain. And that just wow. blows me away. But yeah. sorry, I, you almost can't even consider Bahrain an old world circuit. But because of the changes that they've made to the track and the fact that they went from being a daytime race to a nighttime race, and everything it just kind of throws your historic throws my historical perspective into flux but for me it was part of it was always you know every year they always started in sao paulo in brazil um you know and they always finished the year every year in melbourne and then the other races always kind of had a traditional day you know and a few years ago when they took and they kind of mixed everything up and they started adding a lot of you know the middle east races and things like that you know and you know those kind of things you know um so i guess what i'm trying to say is i don't know how to feel about Bahrain being <laughs> the season opener i guess it's as good a place to start as any 
Um, you know, it's I definitely think that Bahrain is definitely a better uh, track than Jeddah. I hate. Well, I shouldn't say that because I don't want anybody coming from, you know, the Saudi crown prince coming after me or anything. But I don't like the, the Saudi Arabia track. I'm not a big fan of Azerbaijan. Um, I'm, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, with the exception of Monaco, I'm not a big fan of most of the street races. Um, yeah. I just, you know, the street races to me are just, they don't have the same appeal from a driver's standpoint. So, you know, myself, you know, being a driver, you know, a race, you know, former race driver and, you know, I mean, albeit in carts, but, you know, and having done performance driving in, you know, automobiles and everything, I like the more dedicated tracks where they have, you know, wider, the tracks wider, there's more opportunity, you know, passing opportunities, things like that, better chances, you know, the elevation changes and everything. Now, Azerbaijan, there's parts of that track that are awesome. There are parts of that track that I just hate. I especially yeah. hate the one kink where it just, it goes from, I think, what is it? it? Yeah, I saw the stat the other day that I think it goes from like something like 80 feet wide at, you know, at some parts of the track. And then when it goes into the old town section where it goes into that one uphill kink where it like literally narrows to like 35 feet, you know, from, from wall to wall. And, you know, it's like, it is so narrow right there that is just, I know the drivers like it because it's a challenge, but from a, yeah. from a fan perspective, not right, so much. Right, right. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I like I just personally I like the old world tracks, you know, the ones that you know I've been watching since I was a kid, you know, sure. the Silverstones and the Monzas yeah. and everything. And and it's like I but then again, I have to kind of go back and say also I liked it a lot better when they took and they went back in Melbourne. Uh when the Australian mm -hmm. Grand Prix moved to Melbourne over in Albert Park as opposed to when it was in Adelaide. Um, you know, the Adelaide track was another one of those street races, you know, and even though, you know, parts of, you know, Albert Park are, you know, dedicated road, part of the, the dedicated track, parts of it are still, you know, public streets the rest of the year and everything. And so I guess what I'm saying is I'm completely talking out of my ass. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but no, I mean. Like I said, I guess we got to say that, it, you know, we got to start somewhere and Bahrain is just as good a place to start as any. Sure, sure. That's fair. <laughs> man. That's fair. So what do you think about preseason testing versus reality? That is something that, you know, we touched upon earlier uh, yeah. in, in the show, but it's something that I still go back to that. It's like, I understand that in this day and age of, you know, Formula One trying to be more cost, cost conscious and trying to make it a little more level for the teams. The one thing that I have always thought was the wrong place to take and try to contain the cost at was testing. Yes, the teams now have these, you know, multi-million dollar simulator rigs that can take and, and, and simulate, you know, motion and everything else. Simulator is still not the same thing as running the car on a track. And especially for rookies, drivers who aren't, you know, who may have been away from the sport for a little while, 
there is no substitute for real world seat time. Yeah. And so having said that, I think that's part of the reason why, you know, because it used to be during preseason testing, you would have teams that would sandbag, you know, and wouldn't oh, show yeah. that, you know, the car's full potential. You know, you would have teams that would go out there. This year. Yeah, exactly. You know, or you would have teams, you know, like some of the midfield or, you know, back of the pack teams that would go out there and during testing, because they weren't, you know, subject to scrutineering and everything, they would be out there riding, you know, running the car 100 kilograms underweight with no fuel to go out there and set a really fast time in hopes of, you know, not necessarily, you know, it wasn't necessarily so much about performance, but, you know, hey, look how fast our car is, you know, right. hey, so-and-so, you know, we've been talking to you about sponsorship, give us some more money and everything, right. um, you know, or trying to generate headlines and everything. So, you know, reality versus, you know, you know, what can happen in preseason testing, even to this day, it's still really hard to tell because it's like, you don't know, you know, what car, okay, so team A went out and set a really fast time on the first day of testing. I mean, we saw that last year. Uh, I, let me train a thought here. We saw that last year. McLaren came out of the box looking really, really good during preseason testing. And then we got to the first race of the season, and they were, you know, way back in the order. Yeah. And everything. And it's like all of a sudden everybody was like, well, what the hell happened to McLaren? Well, you know, as it turns out, McLaren was they were running the car light. They were running yeah. it with very low fuel loads and they were running it on, you know, super sticky, soft tires. And they went out there and set some really fast times. But in reality, the car yeah. wasn't that good. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, it's but, you know, teams have been doing that for in Formula One testing for as long as I can remember. You know, sure. you've got teams that are going to sandbag that are not going to take and show the car's full potential. They're out there more working on reliability or mm -hmm. working on making sure that new developmental parts are working within, you know, the parameters that they've specified, you know. And then you've got teams that are out there that are just they're, all they're worried about is trying to generate headlines and, you know, ma make a splash and everything. So, you know, it's, you know, you can never trust preseason testing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can take and you can say, okay, well, Alonso, you know, had a really good stretch on the second day, late in the evening, you know, later in the day, you know, but who knows what kind, you know, he was running a race simulation, but Alonso was posting, you know, really, really good times that were within, you know, half a second or less of Red Bull you know, during race simulation runs and everything, which means that they probably started out with full tanks and was going through an entire fuel load and everything. But again, we don't know, again, because they're not subject to scrutineering, was it, were they running the car light? Were they doing yeah. this? Were they doing that? You know, those kind of things that it was like, you kind of wonder, okay, are they going to really be that good when they get to, to exactly. uh when they get to the first race well as we saw with aston martin yeah they really are that good right, <laughs> they right. really come correct with the car um so you know it's just all <laughs> uh, preseason testing for in a lot of cases when it comes from a fan's perspective is a lot of it is just theater <laughs> yeah yeah i don't but I am, all, though, you know as long yeah, as we know but, what we're getting into you know Yes, absolutely. But um, 
I definitely do think, though, that they need to take, and I would much rather see them put limitations on the amount of time that they're able to run the simulators and put yeah. more of that time back into allowing the teams to have more actual on-track running. I mean, that makes sense, yeah. you know, it's like Ferrari have their own test track. I mean, they built that track so that they could test their Formula One cars whenever the hell they felt like it. Yeah. And now, I mean, it's like, they, yes, okay, they still use the track every single day because they're out there pounding around in their road cars. But, you know, I'm just, I'm, you know, should they be allowed to take and do testing to the excess that they did back in the 90s and, you know, the 80s and the 90s and everything? Probably not, because, yes, that's that's a lot of expense. Yeah. But with the co- with the cost cap being in place, I think that they definitely should allow the teams to allocate that money how they see fit. And I think that they should take away the, the, the testing limitations and allow them to, okay, if we want to go test 10 days this year, fine. But that takes, you know, it's like, that's still part of the, but that's still part of the budget that may take away from wind tunnel time that may take away from sure. developmental, you know, expenses, but we want to test more allow them to do that yeah so that that's my two cents on testing and, oh, and i reality. totally agree man yeah love it well, i think that's it that's all we have time for today all right then so i you know as we said you know we got australia in two weeks a little less than two weeks now yeah so uh you know albert park always takes and does uh some puts on some uh, pretty fantastic shows so i can't wait to see it awesome yeah me too so we're going to take, we're going to put this thing into park for May and call it a day. So we'll see you in two weeks for my co-host, Corey Brune. My name is Scott Vick and you've been listening to F1 innovation and perspective. Good night, everyone. Good night.